Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Bobby Seagull, great name or what, recently co-presented a BBC radio broadcast about polymaths, people who like to learn about everything. It could be used to describe him too, this term. Bobby is a part-time teacher here in East London. He's studying for a doctorate in Cambridge. He was the happiest contestant ever on University Challenge, according to some on social media. He's also a TV presenter, alongside fellow University Challenge alumni Eric Monkman, the author of The Infectious, Life-Changing Magic of Numbers, and that's his real passion, numeracy. He's an advocate for maths, and now, in keeping with this thirst for knowledge generally, currently a library's champion. Busy man. Oh, and last but certainly not least, he's a hardcore West Ham United supporter. Today, though, we are in East Ham Library. We're going to be joined for our discussion by Deborah Peck, Library Development Officer here in Newham. So let's go and meet them both now, Bobby and Deborah. Thank you both for joining us on Ex Libris. Bobby, this library is very special to you personally, I know, and you immediately chose this venue for our location to meet today. Could you tell our listeners about it, that relationship, why it's special to you, and perhaps describe it a little bit, give us a bit of background as to why East Ham Library? I am an East Ham person, born and bred. Actually, probably born Newham General Hospital, but I call it East Ham. And growing up, Every Saturday, we used to spend in East Ham Library. We're actually in the new premises, which have been opened, Deborah, I'm thinking, since 2014. 2014. And they had 42 computer terminals, which you all know is the answer to the question... What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life. Yeah, the secret. That's, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, see, I'm already a little bit scared around you. Yeah, you sound like the wrong thing. But yes, the secret to, to everything, 42, apparently. Absolutely. So this is the new... Don't really understand why, but maybe that's another... That's another discussion. Yeah, it's a nice number. So this library is obviously the new incarnation of the library that I visited for my childhood, which is actually just two minutes around the corner. But my, I had a sort of ritualistic routine that I guess my father played an influential part. So every Saturday, we would usually have a South Indian lunch. My mum would cook really delicious lunch. And then we'd be sort of shipped off into the world or to East Ham. And the primary objective was, from my mother's perspective, was to do shopping. So we'd take a shopping trolley. We'd come to the library for two, three hours. And we'd sit there in East Ham Library, the old one. And again, it's a really beautiful building. The old East Ham Library was connected to East Ham's landmark clock tower, which was a early 1900s, red brick building, really beautiful. And when I have friends visiting me in East Ham, as one does, they'll often comment, wow, your town hall is stunning. And that was connected to our old library. So that every Saturday we'd end up there and I'd sit on the library floor for hours, sprawl on the floor, cross-legged. I was going to do a rendition of it, but I won't on this I'm sitting down on a chair. And we'd read anything, you know, books on Aztec civilization or Victorian engineering or Roald Dahl, as is particularly popular then. And as a teacher, there was no learning objective with reading. Our dad just said, just absorb the library. You've got all these resources, all the world at your fingertips. Just sit and read. And again, that's what I think developed my sense of love for learning about the world. We'd always have like a cutoff point. About 4.30, we need to leave because at 4.45 is when the final football score. Yes. The, almost a digi-printed. Yeah, come yeah, out yeah. on BBC One. So we I make can sure hear we, the music for sports sport right now. Exactly, yeah. And we need to make sure we get back in time for that. And usually West Ham lost. Or Grandstand. Yeah. And that was my Saturday afternoon Forever. Although my mum would always complain that we'd come back with a shopping trolley full of books. We'd max out on everyone's card. My mum's card, my dad's card, my card, my siblings' cards. But no food, so my dad would often have to go back to the high street and do some shopping afterwards. So you were pretty omnivorous in terms of what you were consuming there in the library. And that went on for a long time? To be honest, 
pretty got, much it was when I was 16, we may come talk about it later, but I got a scholarship to Eton, so I was away for two years. But when I came back, I think pretty much my whole life, even as an adult, I'm now a 35, kids often ask, and I'll yeah. set them a problem, but I'll say I'm, I'm 35 year old adult. Even now, if I'm in East Ham on a Saturday, my routine is the same. Apart from the fact, I'll go to the gym, a gym class, East Ham Ledger Center. It's a man called Dave McQueen. If you want to have a class that is exhausting yet invigorating. Nodding. I know him. He's a bit of a excellent, local legend. Absolutely brilliant. He's a local, yeah. he's a local legend. Mm. Sergeant Payne. Wow. He's putting the whole the whole area through their paces. It really does. So get uh, our uh, body invigorated 11.45 to 1.15 and then normally I'll come in a bit of a sweaty heap to the library at 1.15 spend maybe an hour hour and a half so it's proper body and mind are getting a good exactly, service exactly exactly I mean I, I lose my sort of sartorial sense there but <laughs> taking off my jacket because it's quite warm in here but on a uh, Saturday if you see me you'll think who's this guy you're still coming in uh, doing that routine that's incredible and the scholarship to Eton came about partly through this or would you attribute any of that oh, so to, in terms of the, in terms of your because you know, for instance, Jacqueline Wilson, who's joined us on the podcast, said that she learned more from her local library as a kid than she did at school, which is quite a statement. But how did that scholarship come about? My dad was a big reader of the Times newspaper. And once, I think this must have been late 1999, in the back section, and again, still to this day, I'm an avid reader, especially the sports section, I'm a big sports fan. Towards the sports section of the Times, there was a little ad that said, are you a bright boy from a state school? And immediately my eyes like, oh, what's this? I'm a bright boy. <laughs> and then it says, would you like an amazing experience? I was, that sounds good. I like an amazing experience. And then finally, consider applying to Eton. I was like, oh, I've heard of the school. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen, um, I think Prince William was there at the time. I said, oh. So I sent off a self addressed envelope. No one does that these days, is it? Self-addressed, no. stamp-addressed envelopes. But it was, yeah. It reminds me of Blue Peter, yeah. Yeah, Blue Again, Peter all these references, sort of kiddie references are coming into my head, yeah. Yeah, and then I sent it off, went to the post box, got an application form, went for an open day, was absolutely stunned at the site, and then went, I think about February 2000 for interviews, and then found out I got the offer. Wow. Although I will say again, Newham in the 90s, I would say academically, isn't where it is now. Nowadays, students from Newham have an opportunity to get to the very best universities. You hear of numerous tales of kids getting to Russell Group and Oxbridge. But in the 90s, if there was one child that got into Oxbridge, it was like literally front page news of the entire like, Newham Recorder, local paper. But I would say that my school definitely had a really good environment to learn. And I had teacher was a man called Sir Michael Wilshaw who was, ended up being the head of Ofsted. Quite oh, a disciplinary wow. and quite a tough character, but in an East London environment where perhaps kids can be unruly without the authority, he really made sure that kids learn. So again, library's incredibly important. So it was more just, yeah, library was just sort of additional. It gave know. me, I think it, I think it gave the, it elevated me to, to yes. another level in terms of, in school, you've got a curriculum. Again, as yeah. a teacher now, I realise that there's a curriculum to get through a syllabus. You've got to hit certain points in the scheme of learning. But the library allowed me to expand my mind wherever it wanted. So serendipity would take me anywhere, rather than just having a curriculum that you've got to sort of bash through. And you enjoyed the experience when you got to Eton. It must have been you know, quite a change of scene, but you enjoyed it. I absolutely loved it. Actually, the library there was quite stunning architecture. I remember the, the first time I turned up, the library looks a bit like a mini version of St. Paul's. And again, the students there, because they've probably been in other surroundings similar, they probably took it for granted. But I would just sit there sometimes and just admire, look at back and go, oh my God, this is, out, this is just uh, outstanding architecturally. I have to say, this library coming in, I haven't been here before today, but it's architecturally different to St Paul's or Eaton's library. It's a very pleasing building. It's a modern, a lot of concrete, nice light. So I imagine in summer it's very light. It's a lot of space. And seems quite also flexible. The shelves are on, I can see they're on wheels. Oh, absolutely. So the library can be used for lots of different events and activities that go on here. Yeah, and it's very modern and won some awards actually as well. And was it, so, what did you make, Bobby, when the library moved? Was that a wrench for you or did you appreciate the change? And It's a good question. So I think I'd almost compare it to, perhaps not as extreme, but the move from, when West Ham moved from the Berlin ground, I, I used to be a season ticket holder there, yeah. to the London Stadium. And initially when people move from their sort of sentimental, historical you're grounds... Talking, you're talking to an inveterate gooner from Highbury. Who, the library, who, yeah? Well, I've always gone to Highbury <laughs> and now I've got to Emirates and yes. We used to call it Highbury well. Library. Yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. there a couple of times. It was a <laughs> I know it well. Yeah. But yes, that change is a necessary one. Yeah. And, and, and you think in terms of this library was a, a beneficial thing for the community? Oh, absolutely. Because again, the old library was brilliant, had the historical feel and centre to it. But if you're trying to progress, move forward, welcome new people, new communities expand, you need a purpose-built site. And this is what East Ham Library is. And I can see, you know, it's a big library and it's very vibrant today, this afternoon. 
and I can see it's also multi-purpose in the sense that, you know, it's a bit of a hub for community services as well as books. Yeah, so we've got lots of, well, there are purpose-built rooms within the library that people can hire out and use for community activities, as well as we've got a study space up there, a children's area, a reading area and a cafe, you know, so there's, yeah, lots going on in here for different parts of the community. Yeah, Yeah, it's fantastic. As the original library is only down the road, it's about a minute away, and it's now a sixth form college, but I think they've kindly said that we can go and have a quick look. And yeah, as long as we make it before the close time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll quickly go and have a quick butcher's, and you can have a trip down memory lane. That would be fantastic. Let's do that. We'd have walked through here, and here there would have been lots of other, of like fiction, the Tamil books, the European language books, but when you come through here, this is the children's section. And there's actually one bit of the old library still there. They have a look at this beautiful fireplace. Um, almost like emerald green styling with a beautiful old, I guess, mahogany style wood with carvings and flowers. But this would have been the sort of portal to the kids' library over there. This makes me feel very... Uh, do you get a bit misty-eyed? Yes, I do. Yeah. Without this, I wouldn't be who I am at all. It's amazing. Now that's just, I think, just to say storage area, but that was the, you can see this archway here, that leads into the kids' section. So that really is like a, that is a that, portal to your childhood. That literally right is. Here. So I just peek what that is through. Yeah, so behind that office, there's like a storage room, and behind the office there, that literally is. I'm about 10 feet away from ground zero. It's a really nice space, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. beautiful, big old high ceilings. It really is, yeah. I think now I'd say, um, Six form study area and upstairs like a workspace stroke exam centre. So it's still, I mean, at least it's not sort of been turned into a block of flats no, or something. No, it's still functioning. This was my childhood library as well, and although it was in a different position from when Bobby was here, because when I was a child, that you had to go up some stairs at the top, and we had a little, an actual children's library with a qualified children's librarian, and it was absolutely beautiful. So my routine would be quite similar to yours as a child. In the summer holidays, we'd go off to swimming, to the library, and then the rest of the afternoon in the park. I'd um, spend an absolute, you know, it was wonderful time. And working here then as an adult, we had a beautiful oak counter at the corner there. So when you came in, it was just this beautiful counter there with the wooden shelves everywhere. I feel very nostalgic being here as well. And it made such an impression on you that you ended up working in libraries in the community. Oh, definitely. I loved it so much because it was a place as a child where you could go and... You knew you were safe there. Your parents knew you were safe there. There were lots of activities going on all through the summer holidays, as we do now. And it was just a fantastic place to be. So it had a great bearing on what I did as an adult. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a powerful space for both of you. I can yeah. feel it. It's like a sort of aura around <laughs> yes. you both right now. Thank you for letting us have a look. Wow, well, now we get the full picture and we're back in the, the new library here, which is quite, quite a big difference. But that was fantastic. Bobby, I understand your love of maths was something that you really, you had an epiphany about that, or you just sort of discovered a passion more in the playground than in the library. Was this correct? Yes, it is 10 points. That is the correct answer. I've read your book, so (laughs) I'm cheating, but yes. Research is allowed. Again, (laughs) sometimes my students will think if someone's very ahead in the chapter, what we're sort of the scheme of learning, oh, that's cheating. It's not. It's it's good research. Yeah. Applaud to... <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad that it's correct. And, and it, again, involves football. You were talking about, well, back to Arsenal, Ian Wright and Matthew Letizia. Yes. Which, they're not obvious com- comparable players. In sort of, one's a flair player, yeah, one's a yeah. more direct... It's like comparing Gaza and Lineker. Yeah, they're not, they're not comparable. But I remember back in the early, mid-90s, about 93, I think, 1994, lots of boys and some girls collected stickers... And, you know, the, the sort of infamous phrases, got, 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 need. And when you need a sticker, your eyes will pop out your head yeah, and you, you well. yeah, yeah, and it would provoke much discussion. But what I found was that people, as well as trading stickers, they would discuss the merits of various players and teams. And often it would just be the case of who would shout the loudest. Like they would say, oh, player A is better than player B. Why? Because, 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 because. I was going to say the wonderful Wizard of Oz. That's, <laughs> that's not, not what I was wanting to talk about. But um, the, again, one particular conversation I remember was players that were talked about were Matt Letizia and Ian Wright. 
I remember friends saying, Matthew Tizia is better than Ian Wright. And I asked them, why do you think so? And they said, because he is. And they wouldn't give any justification. So then I remember the sticker books were treasure troves information. It had the names, the ages, the heights, the goals, left foot, right foot, appearance, substitute appearance, lots of data about the players. And in the early 90s, computer technology was slowly coming into play. And there was an early version of Excel, really early, rudimentary. And I remember I had, for weeks after school, input, spent like an hour inputting in all the data on every player. So going from Arsenal, Blackburn, Chelsea, wow. presumed Derby would have been back there, all the way through to the, the clubs right at the end, West Ham, maybe West, I don't think West Brom were in it. And then with that particular conversation, I did a simple comparison between the two players. And I went back and told my friends, you know that conversation we had about Letizia and Ian Wright? Actually, Letizia that season had scored 20% of his goals from the penalty spot. So Ian Wright's actually a more effective player on the field. And my friends are like, actually, they're like, Bobby, that's a, that's a good point you make. And I always tell people, this didn't make me popular. It didn't make me like the, the star of the playground. But what it did show me and my friends is that maths can be a way of objectively looking at things because sometimes in, in, in children's life, life can be messy, complicated, parental issues, lots of things going on. But maths can be that comfort, like you always know. You always know. <laughs> Someone needs some help for copy. Exactly, yeah. It's like sometimes in school when we have um, film crews coming in to sort of look at my lessons and a child will come and ask for help and the film crew's got to wait because that's, this is a school. Yeah. So, yeah. Job number one. Exactly. So the sticker, Panini sticker incident, demonstrated for me the power of mathematics because, you know, I'm a short guy. I'm still only five foot four and back then I'd have been probably quite a lot less than five four. But where people are trying to assert themselves with their physical dominance. Actually, maths is a way of objectively looking at things. And that sparked my real love for mathematics and statistics because it showed me that it's not just about loud voices. It's about who has information, data that can help their arguments. And since then, I've always loved maths. But football was the sort of the thing that got me into it. I loved in your book when you went into the, you sort of deconstructed how many packs of Panini stickers you'd have to buy to complete the album. And it was quite eye-watching, especially I speak as someone who completed the Back to the Future Panini sticker book. You completed the sticker book? Oh, man, your book book made me uh, almost weep. I wish I'd kept it. And Mexico 86. You completed it. That dates it. So you finished With my brothers. Oh, my God. But my son, who's now 11, he collects match tags, not Panini stickers, interestingly. So times move on. But, yeah, I wish, God, I wish I kept those sticker books. But that was... And you um, completed. The thing is, like, I remember I have many... I think I had to send away because you sent away at the end, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I think you got to a certain point and then you could send away and cheat at the very end. I think that nowadays, if you wanted to, you could gather your friends and each of you does 50 stickers to your house. So between the group of you, you could actually game the system, as it were. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not that I'm encouraging that. You know, <laughs> it's for the joy of opening the packet and wondering what you're yes, doing. Yes, yes. And so now you're studying for a doctorate in maths anxiety. So my research is looking at two aspects. One is maths anxiety, and I guess our individual relationship with the subject. But secondly, is also looking at the role that the media play in, I think, perpetuating negative stereotypes about the subject that I think further compounds maths anxiety and misery. So firstly, as an academic, I'd always have to give a definition of what maths anxiety is. And it's termed as the negative emotional response we encounter when dealing with mathematics. And it can happen to young children in the classroom if they're doing, let's say, a long division problem or seeing algebra. What can happen to us real adults in the, in the real world? You know, we all have that moment when the restaurant bill comes around. And I was actually, as one does, I was in Paris over the weekend doing a talk to the chartered accountants of Paris. And I went and met a friend, actually from East Ham. Actually, the friend was someone that I used to go to the circuits class with. And I messaged my, I put a Facebook message saying, I'm in Paris at the weekend. And it was someone from my East Ham circuits oh, class who's moved to Paris. Says, I'm in Paris now. Bobby, let's have dinner. Voila. Yeah, there you go. And then... When the bill came, she said, oh, Bobby, I know you're a maths teacher, but I'm going to say I can't do maths. And I said, OK, because it's dinner, I'm not going to go into terrain, but do not yeah, say that yeah. in my presence. And I think in the UK and in some parts of the West, it's culturally acceptable to say that you can't do maths in a way in which no one would say they can't read. If you, you know, went to any pub or restaurant or anywhere, any public forum and asked people who's illiterate, no one would put their hand up. And even if they couldn't read, you'd be very embarrassed to admit it. Whereas with numbers, you ask who's enumerate, quite a few hands up and 
probably quite proudly would go up. Mm. So I think it's cultural rather than competence. Can I give you one question? Please. Yeah. So again, I won't put You're going to put Deborah on the spot. No, I will never, not me, I never right? put anyone on the spot. So <laughs> uh, the question is, this is asked by the charity called the National Numeracy Agency to test national levels of numeracy. So they said, imagine you're earning nine pounds an hour, yeah, nine pounds an hour. And then your boss gives you a 5% increase on nine pounds an hour. What is the new amount? See, I know the answer, and it's partly because it's in your book, yeah. and it did take me a second or two yeah. to stop and think. And I've got no idea, and and when you threw that out, it just do, threw do, me do, into do a just, panic. Yeah. I'm going to say £9.45. Yeah, and what was your method to do that mentally? 10%, 90p, divide that by uh, two in half. Yeah. yeah. There you get it, the then, 5%. Yeah, and in the UK, 50% of adults cannot get this correct, even with the calculator. And again, if you talk through the method to most people, explain nine pounds is 900p, and then 10% of 900p is 90p, yeah. and then half of that is 45p. Most people like, that's fairly reasonable. That's not a, a incredibly challenging question. But yeah, when you mention maths to people, and again, the weird thing is if you ask people to read that question, I'm sure nearly everyone in the UK can read it, but you give them the question with the numbers, yeah. and people suddenly it's that get sort that. of knotty feeling that yeah. people get. I, I totally understand, sympathise, because I, I, we all get it, I suppose, apart from obviously you, Bobby. A different sort of question then, why do you think it's important for us to reconnect with maths? Say that we've been through school and we're in the big grown-up world and sort of left it behind, and whether we, we liked it or not, whether we were proficient or consider ourselves to have been or not, why do you think it's important to get this message out there? I think because people have negative experiences of maths in the classroom, so they might be doing algebra, trigonometry, they think I hate maths and numbers altogether. Mm. And, and again, before I delve into the detail of the maths itself, a comparison is P at school. A lot of people found P at school not the best subject. Remember the sort of the showers and the yes. weird gymnasiums and the angry PE teachers and thinking, oh God, I hate a P. But most adults enjoy hiking, walking, swimming, going to the gym, cycling, and these are physical activities. Mm. And yet they wouldn't say, oh, they hate sport, they hate being active. Yet with maths, people do. But the reality is, most of us, even if we're not in complicated maths, are using maths all the time. Again, my mom often says to me, Bobby, I don't know how you got maths brain, I don't have maths brain. I'm like, mom, when you cook for us, our family is six, you're working out how long things need to go in the oven for, coordinating the drinks, making sure that the start is there at a particular time. She's getting things coordinated in a mathematical way. Or when she's going shopping and looking at the discounts and checking which one makes more sense. Or if we're going on holiday and we're trying to make sure we get our euros at the right time. That's all mathematical usage. Yeah. And yet people, when they think of maths, they often think back to their sort of school yeah. days and when the teacher put them on the spot and said, you're wrong, what's five times seven? Do you know that? Five times seven? Eight times seven is meant to be the hardest one. No. Here we go again. Uh, uh, 56? Yes. So the reason why it's meant to I always remember 7 times 749, and then I'd see again, oh, adding, adding that on. Yeah, and you know why it's meant to... Okay, it's not the trickiest one, but the reason it's meant to be the trickiest one is about 20 years ago, the schools minister was a man called Stephen Byers. Yeah. And normally, as educational schools ministers uh, want to, they will say, I'm introducing a new policy, and he said, we're going to have times tables, tests for all primary children. And as one does, if you're introducing a policy, you get interviewed in the Today program on Radio 4. And he's interviewed by John Humphreys. And John Humphreys like, Mr. Byers, let's look at your policies. But before that, I'm going to ask you a question. Eight times seven. And Stephen Byers, without a heartbeat, hesitation, said 54. And you can imagine the headlines in all the papers. Yeah. It was schools minister introducing timetables, can't even get his own timetable. So since then, actually, that's partly why ministers, even now they're sort of the minister of the election, they don't like talking about numbers because people then, if you make a numbers mistake, people just fixate on the mathematical error rather than the general policy. Although we're meeting during an election cycle, this will go out after, it'll all be decided yeah, or, or we whatever, we, whatever that may mean, decide. something will be decided by the time this is, this is out there. But right now they're still campaigning. They're constantly throwing numbers at us. And again, it's another example of how numbers are important so that we can actually understand some of those numbers and how to sort of read into them or not and how they affect us etc so there you go in terms of politicians using numbers they may not want to be put on the spot but they're happy to bandy around all, all manner of numbers at us at the moment so you hear so many things like fifty thousand new nurses 350 million on the side of a bus two billion additional to the economy you hear all these numbers 
And because a lot of people are not comfortable with the numbers, they'll just hear the top line, more nurses, but they won't investigate what does it actually mean? What does the 50,000 actually mean? Or what does it mean to have 350 million for the NHS on the side of a bus? So the reality is politicians could pick any number out of the air and just say that, and that's the headline, without the public feeling comfortable in scrutinising it. So actually, I think, as a country, we need to make sure that people that are allowed to vote should have a comfortableness if that's the word even with numbers because otherwise ultimately a lot of political manifestos are based on policies and this is how we're going to deliver it financially and if we as voters are not financially confident how are we to make a, a sensible decision between the various parties yes you talk about the difference between numeracy and maths and i think it is similar to perhaps the relationship between literacy and literature i would say in terms of your proficiency or your ability to read and then your appreciation or your love of written words. Literacy and numeracy are the day-to-day practical skills we need to navigate the world. And for literacy, it would be like whether at East Ham Library people are coming to get help with their four... Is there there a new council sort of like kiosks people can come in and get support here Deborah. so yeah so there's an opportunity for like a customer service so people can come and have things about their rent and, and so forth and council services. So people there who are coming to East Town Library, they'll be, again, they'll be reading forms, trying to understand when their next council tax bill is, and that's reading, and that's literacy. And the numeracy part might be, they're checking how much their council tax is and whether they can meet their monthly payments. So they're, right. they're the practical things, but beyond that, the maths and then the, the literature is the higher level. So we want everyone to have that basic grasp, but once you've got that grasp, then you can really appreciate reading differently. You can be able to make sensible comparisons between J.K. Rowling and maybe Dostoevsky, or you can make a comparison between Middle Eastern mathematics and modern mathematics. So like, mm-hmm. those can only happen if you get that comfortable level with the basic numeracy and literacy. So without that, that is like the foundation stone of higher appreciation. And you make all these arguments brilliantly in your book, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers, which I commend to anyone listening, whether they consider, again, whether they consider themselves a maths whiz or not. And you've got some great quotes in there as well to illustrate your arguments. When you've mastered numbers, you will in fact no longer be reading numbers. Any more than you read words when reading books, you will be reading meanings, which I love. And that sort of speaks to how you probably regard the world, I, I imagine, as well, in terms of seeing those patterns and being able to make sense of the world through maths. Do you remember the Matrix films? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not, not quite like Matrix. You know the Matrix where Neo, he sees the world in numbers. I don't quite see that, but no. things do light up. Numbers are not just objects on a piece of paper. For me, when I see them, I see relationships that actually explain the way the world works. And that quote, by the way, I should add, was from W.E.B. Dubois. Yes. Just to give the attribution there. Moving sideways slightly, you found fame off the back of University Challenge. So after school, you mm-hmm. went on to university, and I remember watching you and your Emmanuel College team, and you were defeated in the semi-finals, yeah, I think. Yeah, semi-finals. People, the thing is, were you defeated by Mr. Monkman's team? team. But funnily, you were, enough, you? Yeah. funnily enough, people to this day, they still got, because that was the most viewed match, I think, in the 21st century. I remember century. watching it, yeah. People still get confused. So I've been on Good Morning Britain where Jeremy Kyle said, we've got the Universe Challenge winner. And I said, I'm not the winner. I said, the finalist, I'm not the finalist. Why are you doing here then? And then even the BBC, who are my, not employers, but I do a lot of work with the BBC, they often say, the Universe Challenge finalist or winner. And now I've got, initially I used to always correct people, but now less so because often with media, you've got, let's say, two minutes slot maximum, maybe 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds. And if you're spending 30 seconds of that explaining, no, I didn't get to the final, then you've lost the, you know, if you're there talking about a new report on dementia and how it can be reduced by doing puzzles, yeah. you don't want to spend 30 seconds explaining, sorry, I wasn't the winner. No, no, I, was no, no, the, no. I was actually the semi-finals. I was Derek Monk from there. And then they sort of get, they get sidetracked. So actually, I let people get away with that. And then afterwards, I'll do a tweet saying, just to let you know. Just to be precise. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did lose the semi But it must have been a great experience. And obviously, you've become friends with Eric Monkman and you've done these great road trip documentaries on BBC2. You've got another series coming out, I believe. Yes, cool. Right? So series one was... Monkman Seagull's Genius Guide to Britain. So imagine like a crossover between QI and Top Gear. So the yeah, it was a lot of fun. Vendor. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, so traveling around England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, exploring sites of scientific and quirky interest. And Series 2 is a bit more focused. So Series 2 is uh, Monkman Seagull's Genius Adventures. So this time it's three one-hour episodes. You've got to make sure you get like lots of extra biscuits. And this time we're looking at inventions and discoveries in Britain from 1750 to 1900. So things like the chronometer, uh, which essentially became a version of a clock, the telegraph, uh, discovery of the electron. So it's more scientific, but it's still got uh, what I would call it banter. Banter and biscuits. Yeah, because you taught 
Eric Monkman, the Di Canio West Ham song in Gladstone's library, right? So this is actually funny. I was talking to my dad this morning and people often ask, oh, is your series scripted? Do you know what you're going to say? So we know roughly where we're going to, the sites. But when we're there, it's up to us to lead the scene. So we're walking around and I would say, oh, this is really cool being in the library. We're going to stay over here overnight. And I just saw a book by Verdi and I was like, oh, Eric. And I just started saying, have you heard of Paolo Di Canio, Paolo Di Canio, Paolo Di Canio? And I said, no, but we have not heard of that. <laughs> and I said to him, there was an aria in Rigoletto called uh, La Donna Immobile, La mm. Donna Immobile. And I told him, oh, the Paolo Di Canio song is based on that. And then just suddenly impromptu, I was teaching that to Eric in Gladstone's library. In a library. In a library. Absolutely. I know it's, a, it's one of those moments. Yeah. Everything coming together perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And... Okay, so do you do, here's something I'm curious about, do you do pub quizzes? So not as much as I used to. Because so I'd be pretty intimidated if I looked around with my team and saw <laughs> so Bob Lico at the next table. But I'll tell you the thing is, so normally University Challenge uh, contestants have got good conventional academic knowledge, so your science, your history, your geography, your classical music. And then you think, oh, we can beat them in the popular stuff. But actually, I'm a demon in the popular stuff because I love popular culture, yeah, yeah. Love Island, Bake Off, Strictly, Top Gear, name me any popular show, I probably watch it. Actually, one of the reasons I watch these shows, one, I enjoy it, but B, it's a separate conversation, but television has become much more fractured. People don't consume television media in the same way. You know, we don't, we don't like accept linear programming. Sure. My students, they're all on YouTube and Instagram and programs that have competition elements like Bake Off or Universal Challenge or Strictly, they're the few things that people actually will watch together at the same time to avoid spoiling. So they can almost be like, they are national reference points of conversation. Yeah, there's still, the Attenborough shows have that quality on Sunday evenings still. There's a sort of event, there's an occasion to them that I agree is pretty rare. But do you have any tips for quizzes out there? We're kind of approaching Christmas, there's going to be loads of quizzes going on. Do you have any strategies that you would... Okay, so an important strategy is know what type of quiz you're taking part in. Actually, I filmed Celebrity Mastermind very recently and it's coming out sometime around Christmas New Year. And interestingly, so it was Mr. John Humphreys from the Today Programme, formerly the Today yeah. Programme, that is the host. And my topic actually wasn't that. West Ham? It's close. England at World Cups. I wanted to pick something broader. Otherwise, anyone that's not a West Ham fan would be like, oh God, why is he talking about West Ham? So big England World Cups. But in my two-minute chat, so normally in the Celebrity Mastermind, you do your specialist topic. And then before your general knowledge, you sit down for two minutes. Black chair is quite intimidating, by the way. And they, they talk to you for two minutes on your... If you're like an actor, your next film, if you're a politician, your next big move, or if you're a musician, your next album. But for me, I was very keen and adamant. We wouldn't talk about my TV or anything. We'd talk about maths and maths anxiety. So that might almost, no, I don't think it will, but that might almost do more work than my PhD in terms of publicly disseminating my views and anxiety. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So again, for that quiz, the question is, I think you need to make sure you're prepared for the type of quiz. So actually, genuinely, I don't get to go to many pub quizzes now because of time. But if I am going to pub quiz, I will call ahead to the pub and say, can you just tell me the type of rounds you have? Because imagine a quiz always has a science round or always has a popular music round. Then popular music, I would prepare by going on Spotify and checking Spotify, the top 50. Or if it has a news round, that week before, I'll go on the BBC News site and look at all the top 10 stories. You are pretty hard. So you need to make sure that you are prepared for that type of quiz, not just general... Because even Universe Challenge, certain things appear all the time. They always ask about the periodic table. They always have classical music. They always have Western art in the 19th century. So you need to make sure that you're prepared for that specific quiz. So, if, yeah, otherwise you're just turning up. You know, you wouldn't just turn up. In, yeah, so no, you wouldn't just turn up. Or we're doing a sports competition. You wouldn't just turn up in your sport. You'd say, what type? Is it swimming? Is it triathlon? Is it bowls? Is it darts? You'd want to know the type. Yeah, and yeah, quiz yeah. is the same thing. Okay, here's my next question. Yeah. I, I'm enjoying getting to quiz mm-hmm. you. How much do you attribute your success as a quizzer, which has led to all sorts of other amazing opportunities and developments in your life, how much do you put that down to the library and how you spent those hours here hoovering up all that knowledge, all that sort of different kind of general knowledge as well as expert sort of granular specific knowledge? I would say it's not unreasonable for me to say East Ham Library, my experience there, is the number one reason for me having done well on Universe Challenge and ultimately me having the career. So without East Ham Library, I wouldn't even be talking to you today yeah. right now. I'd probably maybe hopefully listen to your podcast somewhere. But wow. um, yeah, it would be. Yeah. I've always been interested in reading and knowledge, but it's the library, that this sort of Saturday weekly ritual that really built the foundations for me wanting to understand, again, anything. 
we talked about Aztecs, we talked about Victorians rolled out and there wasn't a specific, oh, I'm only going to learn about science, I'm only going to learn about languages. It was that breadth. And again, in a library, you can sit there and you can just see literally the world's collection of knowledge in front of you. You can see the general knowledge, the fiction section, the, the teen fantasy. If this were a movie, like, I mean, they made the movie, it was called Start of Ten. But if this were a movie, then you would have found some little nugget of trivia in the library as on, you know, cross-legged oh, in the children's yeah. section. And that would have been the deciding question in the final of University Challenge where you That would have been, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe they do a celebrity Christmas University Challenge one year. I'll come back and I'll beat Eric <laughs> Monkman in the yes, final yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So now you've combined your love of numbers, your talent for communicating because you're a teacher and you speak with great passion and sort of infectious enthusiasm. But libraries, so you're a libraries champion, for SILIP, yes. which is the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals, librarians and information professionals. And you're following in the very distinguished footsteps of Stephen Fry and Mary Beard. Not bad. Can you talk to us a bit about your role there? Yeah. Through my library experiences, SILIP said you'd be the sort of ideal person to be a ambassador for libraries because one, libraries are an important part of your, your childhood experience and making who you are. But secondly, now as a educator and teacher, I t- I'm working with young people all the time. So actually, yeah. I realised for them, they need to learn about the world, read, and libraries are an important part, be it at school or public libraries at East Ham, are an important part of fulfilling that function. Makes total sense. And what has the role entailed? I know you've written a manifesto. Yes, I've actually got a uh, copy here. Oh, wow. In front of me. And I've got the... Um, so that we launched it at the House of Lords early October with actually the big issue. Because the big issue founder, Lord John Bird, he strongly believes, again, in the importance of reading and libraries and how that can really help people really lift themselves up. Because ultimately, it is knowledge that helps you navigate the world and, and books and reading and libraries and library service can help offer that, that way out. Yes, and this is collectively a, a sort of endeavour to support libraries, make the case for libraries in with data to back up your arguments and support those... I mean, it's a shame that it should come to this, in a sense, but to influence policymakers as well as public-facing yeah, yeah. arguments, is that right? Yeah, I think there's, like, there's two faces to it. One is, again, using my Twitter, social media, my television appearances to talk about the importance of libraries. Because I think if you've got a public service sector that works and is important for people, I think if people stop appreciating it, then it, that's how things get forgotten. Almost like, again, I'm not going to get political, but the NHS, we take it for granted that you can get an injury and you can go and get yourself checked out reasonably quickly and get yourself sorted without any fee at the point of service. And again, with libraries, we mustn't take it for granted. We should appreciate what we have because not everyone in the world has access to libraries and reading and books. So part of my work is publicly getting people to realise how important libraries were to them. So therefore, they should play a part in making sure that others have access to it. And the second part is using sort of soft persuasion on politicians so that they feel obliged to put it as part of their manifesto. And again, I think in this election, for the first time in Four elections, all the major English parties have mentioned libraries in their manifesto. So I think it's like raising yes. awareness with the public, but also with the politicians and decision makers. Yes, with differing, um, we should say, with differing sorts of levels of engagement or mm. um, interest. And today we're meeting coincidentally on the day that the annual report by the Chartered Institute for of Public Finance and Accountancy so it's a very serious body in terms so of surveys. SIPFA. SIPFA. Yeah, so I'm an ACA. Oh, they, rival okay. accountants. Well, not rival, because I'm an association of chartered accountants, and the SIPFA is the, oh, another okay. body, so you're a qualified accountant. So, I'm ah. a, yeah, so they can put SIPFA after the name. So SIPFA yeah. have released their annual survey, which is always a sobering day for anyone who cares about libraries. We can talk about that in a second, but I'm just curious, playing devil's advocate, what you make of the sort of counter-argument that... If we put numbers or impose sort of delivery-type data or arguments onto libraries, making the case for them, do we run the risk of inadvertently sort of pushing them into a quasi-commercial space or commodifying them when in reality I know that obviously policymakers don't think like this and how many of those politicians have usually actually stepped into a public library themselves. I think actually the last libraries minister in his constituency, there were libraries under threat and he was the bloody libraries minister. Anyway, um, without getting too political or politicised during this 
election cycle. Do we overly numerate library services at our peril? Yeah, I think it's a good question of, again, it's perhaps my education uh, research background, between experience and evidence. And I'm trying to marry the two experiences. If you ask me about my library experience growing up, it was absolutely pivotal uh, being here at East Ham in terms of making me who I am. And then the evidence part is what the numbers tell us. Are people using it more? Are they using it less? What are the reasons for it? So I think you need to get a happy marriage of the two because if no one's using a library service, they need to find out why. And then obviously the funding's not going to follow. But then you also need to speak to people about what do libraries mean to them? Because libraries, I think, are more than just books. They, I think they represent something about our society. It's a place, one of the few places now that people can hang out without having to pay as a community, all sorts of you know social strata hanging out in one environment. And that means more than just saying, oh, our numbers are down 3%, you know, and our numbers of our users, so therefore we're going to cut budget by 3%. I think people like politicians need to step above that and go, actually, libraries mean much more to society than just a, a place where books are there. Absolutely. And obviously, Bobby, you're very vocal about the experience that you had with libraries, but there are probably countless stories out there of people who are having similar experiences, and that's what you're saying about, you know, judging things from experience rather than from the numbers of, you know, how many books are issued and I think those stories are really important to our case, really, yeah. Because they're, they're, they're really they're just life-changing stories. Again, when I became the sort of SILIP UK libraries champion and I posted about my story, I had, I had so many people messaging on Twitter, social media, saying, myself, me and my mum went, or me and my grandmother went. And so many people were saying about how the library has made them who they are. So these are stories that, again, if you just look at evidence and numbers, it won't necessarily point that out. So I think you need to combine the two to give you your the best way forward. Yeah, totally. And actually, you know, this doomsday report, as I sort of think of it, which comes out every year, you know, partly that prompted this podcast when it came out last year. And I thought, right, I'm not having this. I'm fed up with this. Mm because it was such eye-watering reading. And again, you know, the headline is that Britain has closed almost 800 libraries since 2010. And we should, of course, give a big shout out to all the librarians and the library workers whose jobs have been really decimated as well. I think we've lost around 10,000 at least in that period. And we've got this endless wave of volunteers and these people who are not, you know, all great that they're getting involved, but they're not trained professionals. So that's another big, big part of this scourge, this problem. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we've been very lucky in Newham because we've kept all of our libraries. So we've got 10 libraries, you know, and you can see from SIPFA figures, you know, we're up 5%. You know, we we talked about not just wanting Mm. to judge things solely on numbers, but we are making a lot of headway within the community, particularly with schools. So we're bringing schools in, so the children and, and our schools and our relationship with the schools is really vibrant. But yes, it is very worrying in some respects that so many libraries are being closed, you know, and and authorities are forced into positions, aren't they? It's not necessarily what they would want to do, but the funding isn't there and they are dealing with the situation in the best way they can. But you're right. It's really awful that people can say that the libraries are the easiest thing to cut. That's where the money can go. Where it's, as you've just demonstrated in your story, and we've talked about the thousands of other people out there who it's made a real difference to their lives, how vital they are. But, you know, sometimes the people who are making those decisions maybe they don't need Mm. that core service in the way that other members of society do. Exactly, yeah, no, well said. It's exactly right. And it's so myopic, short-sighted to think of them as actually the SIPFA chief executive has said today in reference to the report, but he has referred to libraries as lower priority services, which is crazy. It's just crazy. It just drives me nuts. I think that's why we've worked really hard with the schools in the area. So, you know, bringing them in regularly so that children have an understanding of who we are and that they can come to us at any time, you know, and working with the parents to engage the parents to bring the members. Often in Newham as well, we're in an area where a lot of people, English is a second language, so if we can work via the children and engage the children who will bring the parents, that's how we can continue to exist and to thrive, hopefully, within the community. And you're knitting the community together and you're giving these kids and their families whole new leases of life, potentially. Hopefully. Fantastic. 
And one way people can show their love of their local library is just by going there and taking a book out as well. I was looking at these the report today and just the issue figures, you know, just go in and get a book out. Definitely. Again, you know, there's so much on offer and you can just choose anything. So you're out there and you're not buying it. So if you don't like it, bring it back, you know, and you can discover who you are as a reader, especially for parents and the importance of reading from a very, very early age and the difference it makes to life outcomes and chances. And that's another message that we're constantly working with with our children's centres and our, you know, younger community as well. So... It's a lot of hard work, but we're, we're really working, and that's why we're so grateful to Bobby and his campaign and, and working with us and loving East Ham. And I love East Ham Library too. It was my childhood library uh, too. Yeah. yeah, I think I'd sort of reiterate what Deborah's saying. So if you speak to a lot of people out there in the public, uh, you know, we go on the London Underground, uh, East Ham, and you say, oh, our library's important. Do you, do you value them? Yeah, I do. And you ask them, when's the last time you went? They would, oh, yeah, I should go more often. And they, maybe I haven't been for a while. So my, my sort of plea to them is if you really love libraries, the way you can show it is go to your library, oh, yeah. go and visit. And again, a lot of people use online retailers to buy books. You can get them for free. You don't, you know, you save money. And you can also, one of the things about being in a physical place like a library is, again, people that use online websites to buy books it's much more difficult to like make choices because it will give you like recommendations but in a library you can just wander around walk around you can just wander and see things you almost make better decisions for reading totally but yes it takes you out of your comfort zone it means that you will select something in a serendipitous way but also not using those algorithms i don't know if you've had this but because I've published a few books, Amazon, for instance, though I never buy books off them, if I go on there, they've suggested my own book. <laughs> you might like this. I'm like, Scary. oh, yeah, thanks very much for telling me that. Yeah, I hope so. I just have one or two last questions, which I always like to ask as a librarian and also as a, someone who likes a sort of ordered or f- your formulae, etc. in life. How do you order your own libraries or collections or books at home? So at home, every person's room has a mini library. My dad, myself, my siblings. And every room has a different character based on their stage of their life. So the books will always change. So ah, we have a loft upstairs in the attic. And when things sort of are not in general uses, they always sort of move their way upstairs. And eventually, if things are are deemed not useful at all in the house, they end up in the charity shop. So they sort of circulate through. For example, in my dad's room, so he's got a lot of self-help books, books on publishing, books on how to study. So he's trying to write a book on, in my family, four boys from East Ham all went to Oxford. So he's trying to write a book on how he managed to develop four kids. And we don't talk about being any gifted kids, but just four normal kids and make them all love learning so much that they end up at Oxbridge. So again, his book right now, Shelf, is full of self-help, full of books on how to study. And again, that's his purpose. Mm -hmm. And in my room, you come inside, you see lots of books. You've got two shelves, one uh, beside my study table and one which I always think one day it could kill me because there's a book, the whole entire wall we've got with books and I'm always worried that they're, they're all uh-huh. so one day I could be buried by books but I'd be happy that would be a, yeah, yeah. a great way to go the best way to go yeah, <laughs> yeah. And oh, and me. Well, I'm, I'm showing you a picture here, but obviously that people can't see. And that's my living room. I'm very lucky that my partner works for the Folio Society. Oh, wow. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that here. <laughs> but he works for the Folio Society. So I have got the most beautiful collection of books all in my oh, living wow. room. And I've got floor to ceiling shelves that I paid an extortionate amount of money for oh, because sweet. the books are, are my pride and joy. So I don't care about anything else apart from my books. And they're all... Um, that's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, they're all fiction. Yeah, I am a real fiction reader. I don't really do any non-fiction. There aren't any maths books there, Bobby, I'm afraid. Yeah. But I, when I get yours, it'll, yeah, yeah, it'll yeah, be on there that, with yeah, the folio yeah. books. So, yeah, that's how I order mine. Well, thank you both very, very much for joining us. And maybe we might now browse the shelves and, Bobby, you choose something, whether it's an old favourite or something new that's a departure the thing that I think I'm going to browse section wise is the autobiographies because I'm a big so there's a phrase by a American Spanish philosopher called George Santanyana which says those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it so I always think there's there are hundreds of great people out there that have amazing life experiences rather than me trying to recreate and make the same mistakes reading autobiographies is one thing that I enjoy so I think that's probably again we will let serendipity take us away but I have a feeling that that could be a section that could be interesting fantastic well let's head there now thank you
So now we're, we're crossing the divide between the... This is, like, this is the, the chasm, the non-fiction and fiction. So just uh, quickly take a breath. <laughs> and now crossed over to the, the land of the non-fiction. A million years in a day. That sounds interesting. It's Greg Jenner is this this feels like the right pick he's uh the or the involved with the horrible histories yeah oh, i don't know that yeah i don't know that one a million years in a day a curious history of daily life oh so he's just, just tracing through society from ah so the, everything from the morning like why we shave how we bath to our breakfast to our lunch dinner day by day day by day a history of our day I think that seems That's like a nice a, concept. That, that feels like this feels like we have a like a cool over, winner winner chicken dinner here. <laughs> Do you have a choice, Deborah? Yeah? Yes. Oh, ah, Susan Hill by King of the Castle. Susan Hill was the woman in black. Woman in black. That's yes. the one. So I produced the Women in Black films. Did you? Really? Yeah. So I know Susan. It was scary. Very, very scary. It worked. I, my poor partner had a big. Hole in his, oh, you're in wearing, his job. Yeah. You're in, wearing, and I'm all in black. And I also thought from the heart that. because that's where Bobby spoke from. Oh. And I did too. So. Thank you. We well, can't go wrong with Susan Hill. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you both. Thank you. We'll go check them out. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to Ex Libris. If you enjoyed that conversation with Bobby and Deborah every bit as much as me, which is a lot, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you tune in. That way, you'll help us champion libraries and independent bookshops. To see inside both the old and new East Ham libraries, and they're well worth seeing properly, as well as explore our other episodes and venues, please visit our website, www.exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get updates on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at that Ben Holden. Keep an eye on Insta also to stand a chance of winning a signed copy of Bobby's transformative book, the life-changing magic of numbers. Indeed, there's a whole section in there about entering prize draws. It's well worth checking out, trust me. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed and performed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine.